Thanks for listening to the Campus Collective Podcast. As always, we pray that this resource is a helpful supplement for you as a follower of Jesus and as an active member in your local church. We love God's design for His church, and we believe that this resource could never substitute the incredible things that come from active involvement with a community of believers. Campus Collective is a ministry of Huntington Community Church. To learn more, visit our website at HuntingtonCommunityChurch.com. All right, Hebrews 13. Probably going to want to turn me down in the back. All right, thank you. Okay, Hebrews 13, go ahead and get there. It'll be on the screen behind you. If you don't know me, my name is Dustin. I'm one of the pastors here at Huntington Community Church, and I used to preach here. Um, Just kidding, I know it's been a while. Um, It's good to be back, finally, to finish out our series in Hebrews. It's been a long, fun journey. So if you're a note-taker... Just like to point out that I did not warn you that I was going to take a drink right then. Courtney's been all over me this whole time when I've been preaching, saying, every time you're about to take a drink, you always say, I'm going to take a drink, and then it's really awkward. And so I'm sure this is worse, but I just want to point that out, that I thought about it, then I still feel like I had to address it. So, title of the sermon tonight is, What Do We Do After All of That? What do we do after all of that? We've had a two-semester-long journey in the book of Hebrews, and we have made it to the last chapter of what has seriously been, I hope for you, an epic book of some sense. It's been diving deep into the Old Covenant and showing us how it's pictures of salvation and what Christ has done for us on the cross and resurrection. And then, after all of this glorious theology, it stops, and we have what seems like a bunch of random applications for us. It's gonna feel a little scattered tonight. It's gonna be, man, like the temple points to him, the sacrifices point to him, and then a bunch of applications that admittedly don't seem to have an obvious line of logic to them. But I love this because hopefully what you've learned in your own walk with Christ and your journey with the word by the Spirit is that it shows that deep theology is deeply practical in every area of your life. You need more than just practical how-tos. You have to have steel beams in your soul to understand not only what Christ has done, but how he empowers you to live. And so when you see these practical a list of commands, don't just rule them, you know, rule them out as a list of rules that the author of Hebrews is tacked on at the end. This is an overflow of a life that understands deeply the theology of Christ. And so we're going to cover everything tonight from money to sex and even entertaining angels. You'll see. Um, this chapter is going to bear its weight on all of these things. And so what we're going to do tonight is Walk through the chapter, let the gospel realities of Hebrews 1 through 12 set us up for the practical exhortations of this final chapter. And before I even do that, I want to give you permission to admit that there has been times of spiritual dryness this year. I know even for me, there's been um, valleys. It feels like, man, like the people I'm trying to reach won't listen, or I just don't feel it, you know, with Jesus, or whatever different thing that you limped in here with, maybe this entire semester. I just want to give you permission to confess that tonight. Jesus is with you in those valleys. And here's what I'm proposing, that even in what, maybe for you, it's been the whole year, has felt like dry bones and deadness, 
I wanna invite you to see it through the lens of the resurrection. That maybe, just maybe, God is setting the scene to show off his glory in ways that you've never experienced before. God loves doing that, by the way. He loves setting all of the odds against himself to show off how powerful he is. And who knows, maybe in this season of wilderness that you experience, the dryness that you've had, it's God teaching you things you would have never learned had you stayed on the spiritual mountaintop. And so, all over again, you are free to lean into grace and beg God to reignite your passion for him. We can see this campus, this ministry as the stewardship that the Lord has given us. Um, and I love, we have a prayer meeting that happens before these services and Kate prayed this evening that we would not let these last couple weeks just kind of feel like let's just survive and get it over with, but that there's moments and conversations that you need to have with people that God has put in your life. Share the gospel with them and love them in tangible ways before the semester ends. So I want to invite you, let's hear the word one more time this year together, and I'm all in. I can't wait uh, to see what God's going to do. So let me give you this. Chapter one is a big Hebrews gospel setup so that you feel the weight of these practical exhortations. In chapter one, all the way back in August, we learned right off the bat that this glorious fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who spoke the world into existence. All that has been created belongs to him. He is superior to the angels and everything else. Jesus Christ is the point of all of history and the point of your story. Everything you do, feel, think, um, relate to people, all that you do, from the way you study for a test to the people that you meet, to how you eat, how you breathe, all of that is done in relation to him, in light of him, because of him, and before him. That was the big glorious picture we saw of Jesus in chapter one. Chapter two, we saw the logical flow of that was because that salvation is so great, you should pay close attention to Jesus. If you don't, you will drift. So I want you to invite you, again, stop, ask yourself, where is your soul with Jesus? Are you drifting? Are you more obsessed, more in love with him, or have you lost sight of what he's done, the glory of who he is? I'm always convicted over how we can be Christians who know things like our Savior is alive right now after defeating death, and it's easy for us to get bored with things. Are we drifting? Chapter two, we also saw that Jesus Christ is the founder of our salvation, that he shared in flesh and blood with us to be our faithful high priest, and he's able to help us. In chapter three, we considered that Jesus Christ is better than Moses, that we must consider him as the one who is truly faithful over God's house, and that Jesus Christ brings rest to the people of God. Chapter four expounded this idea that the promise of entering this rest still stands because Jesus Christ has purchased it for us. And so just stop and hear this. You can rest. Everything that needed to be done to bring you in right relationship with the God who created you has been done. Another reminder of Jesus as our great high priest, he passed through the heavens he can sympathize with your weakness, and even in that, he never sinned. And the crescendo of chapter four was because of this fact, we can draw near to the throne of grace and get help in the time of need. Chapter five, remember these were kind of confusing for us. It was, we learned that Jesus is better than Melchizedek, 
Remember that random Old Testament character that is kind of mysterious in his origin? But what we saw is that Jesus is the true and better high priest king. And then we were warned to not become dull of hearing, that we should be learning to get off of milk and on to meat. We should be maturing as Christians, not satisfied with staying on spiritual baby food. We want you to mature. That's the point of sanctification, is that you might move on to meat. Chapter 6, and because of this, we're exhorted again to go on to maturity. We also learn, if you remember this, it was a warning passage that it's possible to look like a Christian and not actually be one. Remember that? It's possible, and I think this is one of the biggest fears that can come in ministry, especially in contexts like this where it's so easy when you're surrounded by Christian people pushing you all the time and to know you're about to go to a summer where you might get removed and go back into community that you do not have here. You gotta ask, you truly love Christ. You can think you're okay before a holy God because you have the right ministry connections. But at the same time, if you remember Caleb's sermon, we celebrated that we can be absolutely sure of every single one of God's promises. We are sure of better things for the people who truly know Christ. In chapter seven, Melchizedek comes up again. Another reminder of the perfection of the high priest that we have in Christ who is standing before, um, in our place before God. Chapter eight, we saw that Jesus makes um, complete and applies the promises of the new covenant that he will remember your sins no more and you are able to know God. Chapter nine, we learn that we are now able to go to heaven because of Christ. He's dealt with your sins and he's returning again to get those of us who are eagerly waiting for him. Chapter 10, we saw that Jesus Christ's sacrifice was once for all, that you can have assurance of faith because he has died once for all time not just your past sins, your present ones, and the ones you have yet to commit, those in Christ, the sacrifice was sufficient. We were exhorted to not throw away our reward and to have endurance and keep running. Chapter 11, you remember this? Andrew did two sermons in chapter 11 of the Hall of Faith, seeing these incredible men and women of God in the Old Testament and how their lives pointed to us what a life worthy of the gospel looks like because they they lived by faith and not by sight. And then chapter 12, we reminded Eric's sermon, if you remember, to keep running, throw off the weights and sins, keep your eyes on Jesus. Loveday reminded us to accept the discipline and know that we are loved because we can be holy. And then Anthony, last week, reminded us that the kingdom we're a part of is unshakable. All of these glorious realities pointing to us to chapter 13 a scattered list of directives and commands of what the people of God are to be like. And so I want to tell you, these should convict you where you're guilty. As Christians, we want to be moved away from our sin and be exposed so that we might see new sins in us that are already forgiven that we can fight. It also can give you moral clarity. It shows you the way of abundant life. Please don't ignore this. Listen, unconfessed, unconsidered, unrepented of sins will ruin your life. We want no compromises. When you see these commands, it's gonna be so easy to check it off as if you think you're good, but they're meant to be a gift to you so you can see more sin in your life that's already forgiven that you get to fight. 
And in all of that, we're going to see who we, are, who we can be in Christ. Our joyful, heartfelt obedience to these commands are for our good and for the flourishing of our souls that show off the wisdom of God's kingdom. Man, don't you want that? I want to live that way, that my life is marked by obedience that shows off the glory of God. So all that being said, verse 1, chapter 13, let brotherly love continue. So what we see right off the bat is that we are to let this type of love continue in our midst. Please see the family type of love that is evident in this command. Let brotherly love continue. And once again, I know we ring this bell every week, but this is another reason that we push you to join a church family. We get to be a family in this way and not have to live this out alone. But notice another reality here. It's not just family love. We're supposed to let that type of love continue. We don't want to settle for the current level of love that we already have for each other. Another New Testament letter, Philippians 1, Paul prays that the church in, um, in Philippi would have love that abounded more and more. And I think this flies in the face of all of our natural sinful tendency to just settle and have enough. Um, I know this because this was me in school. I wanted to do the least amount of work for the best possible grade that stroked my ego just enough and didn't make me feel like I was inferior. That was it. It was like, tell me what is enough to get like a B minus. And I was good. I would do that amount. No more, no less. I would do really well at that little bit amount of work that I was doing so that I would just be enough. And I want to challenge you. We should not be like this in our relationship with Christ. Repent of this in yourself. We want to continue, not get to a point and stop, not be satisfied with the love that we have for each other. In the Philippians 1 way, we want to abound, and in Hebrews 13, 1, we want to continue. And anytime you see a command, you should know that your flesh is gonna war against it and want to do the opposite, which means when you see a command, like let brotherly love continue, you need to know, in your flesh, left unchecked, you're gonna want to let brotherly love stop with you. Have you settled? Is the brotherly family love we have for each other contingent upon how much time that we have? Is it contingent upon if we feel like it? Is it contingent upon if it's fun? Is it contingent upon if we get love back? And before you use this reality to club someone else with it, ask yourself these questions about how you are loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because the gospel reality is this, Jesus Christ has died and rose again, and because of that, we are able to love this way now. His death and resurrection created a family that we get to love. And so repent tonight. Are there people in your life that you need to confess your bitterness and envy to? Are there people that you are intentionally avoiding? Are there people that you gossip about and slander? Are there people that you are purposely, subtly, hoping no one notices, edging out of your life? Let brotherly love continue, not stop with you. Make these things right. If you are working against family love in your heart and in actions against a brother or sister, you are sinning against God and you are robbing your joy and offending a holy God who made the people that you are purposely not loving. Listen to me. It's worth the awkward conversation every time. Right now, I pray the Spirit's pointing you to a conversation you might have to have tonight. Someone you gotta go text, call, get coffee with before the end of the semester, whatever it takes. You want nothing in your soul that's working against these commands. The charge is to continue. It doesn't matter what's happened in the past. 
although it matters to glorify God, what we want is for this to continue in us, not be contingent upon what's going on in our lives. And so we resolve to die to ourselves and go practically love and serve the people in our lives. Verse two, remember I said, this feels kind of scattered, so let brotherly love continue, and then do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. We're gonna get to that. But if the first directive was aimed at people in the faith, this one seems to have an outward force to it that is crucial for your personal ministry and our collective ministry as well. There are strangers in our lives and in our classes that we should be showing hospitality to. Not just putting on a good show for them that is actually just about you, but actually inviting them into your life. This is kingdom work. Sometimes we can get in this mindset that ministry is just the things that happen on stage, that you go to a ministry and watch a ministry. That's nonsense. This is meant to equip you for the work of the ministry. And one of those ways that all of us can do It's not like I'm just not gifted in that way. It's a command. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. So you need to ask yourself, how is my heart toward people I don't know? Am I neglecting to show them hospitality? The beautiful vision for ministry is a family on mission where we bring strangers into our lives and love and serve them. And so the same convicting questions from brotherly love could be applied here, but apply it to strangers. And you should really be in on this because of the gospel reality. Do you realize you were a stranger to God? In your sin, you were alienated from a holy God away from the promises that found themselves fulfilled in Christ. And Jesus sought you. And I love the Hebrews 13, two reason given here. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Let's be good exegetes here. Why? For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. It seems like the author is saying that we could be unknowingly entertaining angels. And I will admit, I do not know how to apply this other than keep your eyes peeled. Um, It really is interesting. Uh, Some scholars would say that this means that somehow in the way that we show mercy and love to strangers, that there's a way that you could be unaware that you're actually entertaining angels. That's what the verse says. Um, Other people take maybe a more conservative approach and think maybe the angel's idea there should be better translated ministers. So, you know, maybe you're um, entertaining people who minister the word of God. Either way, what is clear is that you just never know what is actually happening when you follow this command. And so repentance for confession right now. Have you settled your life in with a group of friends without an eye for hurting people? Really sit with it. Have you fortified your plans and your schedule in such a way that leaves no room for people that you don't know? Hebrews 13.2 says that we should not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And too often in our pursuit of comfort and convenience, we can become the type of people that just kind of give that verse a nod and hope that the hospitable, extroverted people among us make sure strangers feel welcome. Gospel people go after strangers. Resolve. Why don't you be the one in your friend group that makes your friend group on mission and not settled? I know it might be awkward. Just be that guy, be that girl. It's okay. You're hanging out on Friday night instead of continuing to watch whatever movie you're watching or doing whatever, playing Catan or whatever you do. Be the one that says, 
all of us right now, who are the strangers in our lives and how can we invite them in? You can be that person. Verse three, here we go. Remember, once again, I know it's kind of scattered, but this is the, this is the line of the text. Remember those who were in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also were in the body. Here's another command for the people of God, and this one has even more power whenever you consider it in context. If you remember, the early church was marked by persecution. The faith that we sing about, that we claim, is a bloody faith. People die for believing the things that we believe. And here the people of God are commanded to remember those in prison and those who are mistreated. Why? Because we are in the body. You see this? Remember those who are in prison. How? As though in prison with them. You should feel and love and be so connected to the people in your life that should they go to prison or be mistreated, it's as if you're right there with them. Why? Because you are also in the body. And I think our tendency is to be ashamed of those who are mistreated and want to distance ourselves from them so that we don't experience the residual shame and ridicule that they go through. But since we're of the same body, that would be the same logic as trying to distance yourself from your right arm because you broke it in an accident. And that is not a shot at Tyler for breaking his arm. I just, just in the outline, man. It's the same logic. You're thinking, this part of my body has been mistreated or hurt, therefore I'm gonna distance myself from it. You would never do that. And that's what we do all the time when we neglect to obey this command. In 2 Timothy, Paul commends his brother Timothy for not being ashamed of his chains. We are to remember the people in their persecution and suffering and not be ashamed of them. The gospel reality is to remember that Jesus Christ was the ultimate sufferer, and as his people, we will suffer too. And I know in the West, in America, it's easy to let these persecution-based passages slip away from us. I'm willing to bet that none of you know anybody personally who's in jail right now for preaching the gospel. But could it be that maybe we aren't getting mistreated because we aren't living boldly? Not saying it would become illegal, but I'm saying there seems to be a thrust in the New Testament that the people of God, when they live as they ought, the world wars against them. And I think it's worth asking, if you never rub against the world, are we really living what we say we believe? I wanna challenge you, don't you want to be a problem for the kingdom of darkness on our campus? My goodness, I want that. I was like, oh my goodness, those people from Campus Collective showed up again. Here they go, loving everybody. Would love that. Not being jerks. Not talking about getting mistreated because you're mean. Saying you boldly love and proclaim the truth and won't let people go in Jesus' name. Bold enough and loving enough to get yourself mistreated. So we need to repent of our ability to forget those in suffering and repent of our tendency to be ashamed of people who are mistreated. How can we resolve to live this out? I think one great way is to learn about the persecuted church through different resources. There's free resources out there. One that just comes to mind is Voice of the Martyrs. Um, you could read good missionary biographies to get some grit in your faith. It's good for you to consider what it costs to follow Jesus in other parts of the world. And then we get to go be with the ones who are suffering, no matter the cost. And then we go from love hospitality, mission, suffering, straight to sex and purity. Look at verse four. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So the command here for the people of God is to honor marriage, to honor marriage as God intended it. 
to be a man and a woman in a lifetime union that shows off the glory of Christ and his church. God created this, and we must not dishonor God by saying that it can be defined other ways. Any other definition or expression of the ordained, beautiful, glorious reality of marriage as laid out in the Christian scriptures is dishonoring to the God who created the institution. And affirming that and loving that and cherishing that and defending that is not the same as being hateful and mean. It has nothing to do with your ability to love and reach people. It has everything to do with the obedience to Hebrews 13.4. Let's get more practical here. Some of us, I think, dishonor marriage in the way that we date. The way that you think about the opposite sex. The way you think about your pursuit of potential future marriage. You're flippant about it. You don't respect the person that you're with in purity. It's easy to compromise morally for the sake of pleasure. All of these things are ways that we can honor the institution of marriage. Then it keeps going. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. It's a clear reference to sex here. The point is clear in the scriptures. Sex is a good gift from God, but our culture and in our flesh, we too take it, tear it apart to mean a self-serving expression of pleasure or the butt of gross perverted jokes or entertainment for our eyes. This has implications for everything from lust to your moral boundaries or lack of boundaries with your boyfriend or girlfriend or secret sins of pornography. You need to understand that God, this God who, who foreshadowed Christ coming in the old covenant, what this looks like to honor that God is to honor God with your body. He wants us to honor him with our sexuality. And in this verse, there's, there's um, tacked on at the end is this reason that God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. It's a sobering reminder for us all. But there's a gospel reality here that is glorious. Do you realize, for those of you who are in Christ, that God already has judged your sexual immorality at the cross? Listen to me. You are not doomed or damaged goods because of your sexual brokenness or your sexual baggage. There is no secret addiction that Jesus cannot speak to and love you through. There is no sin that you cannot repent of. His mercy is more and powerful to save, not just from your past sins, but to deliver you from present enslavement to things you may be hiding. No matter your temptations or struggles or past sins, there is full and free forgiveness in Christ and power to obey and be pure. It's possible. When God gives a command, with it for the believer comes power to obey. So when you see a command, feel the conviction of it, but also see the wonder of it. This is who I can be because of the Spirit in me. So repent, do whatever it takes for sexual purity and resolve. Some of you may need to end relationships But all of us need to operate in purity. It's of utmost importance that we honor God with our bodies. Then, another hard left turn, admittedly, verse five and six goes to money. So keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. All right, let's look at this. Another command here. Keep your life free from the love of money. And once again, I know these things seem unconnected, but it speaks once again to the vast practicality of the word of God. 
Theology is meant to touch everything in your life, including your bank accounts. It's not meant to stay as mere head knowledge. God wants you to be glorifying him with your money. And you know this, hopefully, but the love of money can crush you. And it's not just the love of money. Sometimes for us, it's the worship of what you think money can give you. Power, security, status, stability. You fill in the blank. All of us want more money because we think more money means more blank. But as gospel people, we are free to be content. Contentment is a superpower in spiritual warfare. Can you imagine staring at the word, loving Jesus enough, where you get to the point in your soul where if you have Jesus, you have enough. You're good, content. If you have a lot, you've got Christ. If you have little, you've got Christ. You get nailed with some big financial setback, doesn't matter, because a financial setback can't touch your salvation. You can be that type of person, and guys, I'm begging you, settle this now. It's so easy to think that your lack of generosity or your lack of kind of like being uh, holding on tight to money is an income problem when in fact it's a heart problem. People who have nothing that are down to their last flex dollar or people who have more money than they know what to do with in their bank accounts, all of them can love money. You can be built into a man or a woman like this, a truly content person. And this verse shows us how. Man, I pray you get this. So, we, are, we fight the love of money with what? The promises of God. Did you see it in the text? Keep your life free from the love of money, command one. Be content with what you have, command two. How? Four, the promises of God. The Lord will never leave you or forsake you, and because we know that, we know he's our helper, we have nothing to fear. Man can't do anything to you if you're in Christ. And now, you would think to a church in persecution, a church that maybe is losing everything and being stripped of all their possessions, you would know that these words are like oxygen. But we can lean into this too. Listen, you really want to make a difference in your world. You want to be used post-graduation and be used for God in big kingdom-moving ways. It's not going to be legitimate or lasting if you do it by chasing the world's dreams by the world's means. It's not going to happen. It's going to be radically giving yourself to the kingdom, armed with contentment, and using your money to worship God and not worshiping money as your God. Fight it. Fight your just anxiety over it. What the Lord is with me, what can man do to me? And deep in your soul, the Spirit can change you to type of man or type of woman that truly can believe that and be content no matter what. It's possible. Because God has given you everything in Christ, you have him forever and you don't need anything. You are free to be content. Your actual needs will be actually met. It's a promise. So we can repent of our complaining, of our coveting, of our worrying and resolve to live simply and generously trusting that God provides every step of the way. Verse seven, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. This is once again another example of a verse that is impossible, please hear me, impossible to obey without a local church. Who are your leaders if you haven't committed to a body with pastors? And clearly, you should know them well enough to be able to see their lives and imitate it. This is a beautiful challenge for ministry leaders and for those of you that want to be ministry leaders in some capacity one day. Ask yourself, is your life worth imitating? Is your faith worth imitating? What about the parts that nobody sees? 
The gospel reality, of course, is that only Jesus is perfect, but he shows off his glory in the well-lived lives of leaders. So we need to repent of our tendency to think that you don't need leadership in your life and repent of the gaps in your character and integrity, especially the areas that you're hiding and not seen by others. And resolve by God's grace to live a life of integrity. And if you're gonna obey this verse, to remember them, consider the outcome of their way of life, to be in a church, you must resolve to join a church family and know the family. Verse eight. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And here we get a beautiful declaration of how our Savior does not change. Think about how fickle we are. And here we see that our King is unchanging. Jesus Christ is the same in the past, in the present, in the future. He has been faithful to you in the past. He will be the same to you now, and you can count on him for your future. This can provide you great stability, power, and presence. Think about how much you've changed just this year. He hasn't at all. The same glorious Savior that he was when he first saved you. He has always been, is right now, and will always be who we know him in the scriptures. In verse 9, you hear this declaration of Jesus is the same, and then a command for us to know our Bibles implicitly. Look at verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. And so our next command here is to not be led away by false teaching. And the first reality to consider, please hear this, it is possible to be led away by bad teaching. If you're commanded not to, that means it's possible to disobey this. Please listen. Do not trust everything that you see on TikTok. I'm not trying to be funny. Wolves in sheep's clothing have a bigger platform now than they ever have. And it's easy to find things that tickle your ears and have no business having any influence over the way you view the gospel and the Bible. It's not a funny thing, it's not an inconvenient thing, it's not an annoying thing. False teaching leads people to hell. And even Christians who are heaven bound can be tricked into believing wrong things about the word. And so, know your Bibles. I pray that all of you, whether you um, stay here or graduate one day, all of you hopefully are gonna look for a local church to belong to. And you shouldn't just go to the one who has the fancy microphone that sounds the most entertaining. You should test what they are saying and not be led away by strange and diverse teachings. We want you to be the type of man, the type of woman that can test everything, know the truth deeply. And a couple of keys here in the verse give us insight into the particular things this audience needed to hear. Notice the four, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. So do not be led away, why? Because your heart needs grace. And what often happens in false teaching is they make you rely on yourself in various ways rather than the biblical gospel of only being saved and sustained by faith. It's the only thing, by grace through faith, that can actually sustain you. And obviously in this context, there was something to do with foods being promoted as the way to strengthen your heart. False teaching will always point to something else as the goal and power of your life. Verse 10 continues this. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. 
So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And so the first part of this section of scripture that I just blocked out is continuing the battle against this false teaching. Um, All of the details aren't super clear, but at least we know that these false teachers were trying to connect old covenant food laws in some way that nullified the new covenant grace found in Christ. Um, As I was studying this, um, my study Bible and various um, articles, things like that, that seemed to be the consensus, that these false teachers were coming in and saying, devote yourself to these food laws, that's what's actually going to strengthen you, pulling people away from the grace that is found in Christ. And for the sake of time, I don't want to get lost in the weeds of that. I want us to see the main point. Jesus Christ is who we should worship as found in his word. And then in this, I love this, we see an old covenant picture of him here. Just like these certain sacrifices were burned outside the camp, so Jesus was killed outside of the camp. And because of that, we gladly join him in his suffering. Obviously not in a salvation sense. But what's clear here is that followers of Jesus join Jesus outside the camp in our rejection of the world, in our embrace of life in Christ that results in the world going against us. Do you realize, Christians are kind of crazy. Like if you are a believer in Christ, you love this. You read, let us go outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured, and you think, yes, I want that. He's worth it. Bring me the reproach that he endured. Bring it on in a world and a culture that will go against me. I love it because that means I'm more like my Savior. In context, we know from previous chapters, the audience um, that were receiving this letter of Hebrews were being built into the type of people who could get their property plundered and still rejoice. That's beautiful. Can you imagine having that type of soul? Someone comes in because you're a Christian, destroys your house, and you think, Praise the Lord. (laughs) Unbelievable. That's a possible way. It doesn't mean you don't lament. It doesn't mean you don't, um, you know, he doesn't bear your suffering and you bear your heart and things don't sting and hurt, but it does mean that you know joining him in the reproach of the world means glory on the other side. So I want to challenge you to join him. Are you? Is your life in Christ, the movements of your day, your conversations with people, is it moving toward the reproach that he endured, or a way into comfort. And I want to be on a war path against comfort and convenience in ministry. You realize we're not going to reach people without going to where they are and risking bearing reproach. It's not going to happen. We've got to be the type of people who shine as gospel lights in our campus and our classes. We'll be people who say, there's the reproach, going outside, I'm going to follow Jesus to the hard and dangerous, difficult conversations and places and know that I'm going to get to enjoy the power of his resurrection because I share in his suffering. we got a war against this, guys. It's too easy in ministry to think the point is to create a more comfortable environment for Christians to feel more comfortable rather than a team, a mission of Christians saying, let's go get them. And why are we able to do this? The text makes it clear, because we are not home. We have no ultimate fulfillment here. Our city, our home is to come. The new Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the unshakable kingdom of Jesus Christ. 
We are in it now and we wait our final fulfillment when he comes back to bring us home. And as we do this, we praise him, one of our true sacrifices of praise to God. Verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Don't forget our praise to God is not just a me and Jesus thing. It overflows into a life of generosity and love to our neighbors. This too is part of our sacrifice to God. Do good and share what you have. What do we all have? We all have time, talent, and treasure. And we should be doing good to others with this, not using it all on ourselves. So I wanna challenge you guys. Check your calendars, check your bank statements to get an idea of what your life is all about. Verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for, what we, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Once again, it's compounding. That idea that sort of started of remembering your leaders becomes even more explicit here in verse 17. We should obey our leaders and submit to them because they watch out for our souls. Um, Once again, showing once again that you need biblical leadership in your life, and that happens in a local church How are you supposed to obey this text if you're not committed to brothers and sisters and leaders in your life? You need to know this is for your good. I know in our age it's easy to be cynical and skeptical of the church because many bad church leaders have used passages like this to bully and abuse people. But please see what leaders should be. Watching over your soul, accountable to God, joyful, clear conscience, acting honorably in all things. This is all good not just for leaders, but also for us to pursue. So whenever you graduate and go wherever you're gonna go, find a church where the leaders live this out so that you might obey this command joyfully. And then this text ends with what is one of the most beautiful kind of benediction blessings um, that I've seen. Um, Obviously, all of them are beautiful in the Bible, but I love this one to end our time. And I want you to hear this as a prayer over you So slow down and receive this. All of the stuff that we've talked about, the conviction that we feel, the resolves we need to have, all the mess of this year, all of it, we trade all of that in at the cross and receive Christ's righteousness, which means every promise of God finds their yes in him, and it's yours, including this. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And then this amazing book ends with some personal greetings here. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. (laughs) That's hilarious. It's 13 chapters of Old Covenant theology, and that's a little bit. Um, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall, see, um, shall send to you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. So I want to end this series with a reminder of the grace we really do have in Christ. And band, you can make your way up to lead us. That he really has lived and died and rose again. Your salvation is secure. You are free to love and show hospitality be sexually pure, be content, love and give yourself to the church in the name of Jesus and by his power. This is the call for all of us. He has made us priests in his new covenant kingdom to use our lives as ministries and an offering 
to our King. And so go ahead and stand to sing, end our series. I'm gonna end it with Hebrews 12, one and two. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's sing.